I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If it's possible to turn compassion into a money economic commodity, but if you can make a movie about compassion and understanding and have it be so glamorous, because it's a movie that you paid to see, that you want to emulate what that is, well, then there you actually have created a purpose for a movie beyond the uh, uh, holding up the mirror to, to human nature. I first met Tom Hanks on a plane decades ago, and I ran into him a couple of times at award shows. And we even made a picture together, Bridge of Spies. But I never really got to know Tom until he came into our studio in Manhattan, and we talked about some of his eclectic interests, like finding meaning in pop entertainment, communicating with children, and of course, typewriters. I said he was eclectic, right? Come on in and enjoy the eclectic world of Tom Hanks. It's, it's a really nice day in the neighborhood. Tom, this is so great that you're in here talking. Alan, with me I can't. Today. I, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pinching myself. When you did, um, you did a TV movie. This was long before the Green Show. Uh, when you, you did a TV movie, it was called The Glass House. Yes. Uh, it was shot in a prison. Um, That's right. I'm still haunted by the final image in which you're the innocent man, and you come. There's mayhem that's going on, and you are shot dead. Mm. Uh, on the other side of the wrongly chosen door. And it was a long shot of just you hunched over with all the backstory behind it. Now, that's a thing that you're in, I don't want to date myself, but I say I'm in junior college or high school and I'm watching on TV. And TV movies were not supposed to be that poignant in those days, you know. You had the occasional Brian song. You played uh, Carol Chessman, the... Uh, uh, the, you, you know more about me than I, than I, than I and, do. And I'm not just studying your IMDb. I'm just going on pure, pure <laughs> memory. And I, I remember um, I was always, I was on the lookout for, um, uh, for something other than the standard fare of, of television, because I'm from the generation that knew what time it was by what was on TV. <laughs> you know, when Love of Life was over, it was time for me yeah. to go to school. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the every now and again, there was when that 90 minute television movie came out, it was there was kind of an art form to it. And, there, and Steven Spielberg made Duel. That was right, one of the movies right. that came out during that time. There was Brian's song, of course, that was about uh, with James Caan it's a, as a Brian Piccolo, the football, all the guys at school were talking about the next day. But The Glass House and a few other a few other things would come along. And I just thought, well, that's not that's not like an episode of Mannix. That's not like that's not like the high chaparral. This is something What do else. you think it is? What how do, and you've made a career doing this of doing stories that appeal to a popular audience who want to be entertained and yet have meaning, have a layer of meaning. Well, that's that, really it's a trick to it, isn't what, it? So uh, how, how how have you gone about it? Well, I've been lucky to be able to do that many times too. You well, you kind of like in a lot of ways you set the standard for life. Well, I don't know about that. Well, on the Green Show, you would do things because I know you started writing them, you started directing them as well, and you became one of the you became one of the power brokers there. On and the Green Show, of course, we're talking about M apostrophe A apostrophe. Why do you call it Green? I heard that somebody on the show called it the Green Show because every day you went to work and you had to put on those olive drab uniforms. You know, nobody ever mentioned that to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> maybe maybe it was uh, oh I can't remember but um, and you would do things like set set and uh, set a half hour in real time you know yeah, you know, yeah, what happened in yeah, real time that, that was a show I wrote with the, with the doctor who was our advisor oh and then there was one from the perspective of the patient who couldn't talk because he had a tracheotomy yeah. and all the whole thing was from his, his perspective point of view yeah you guys yeah would do we stuff we like really that. loved it when we could tell a story in an unusual way. I remember, and we don't. This is this is a Tom Hank podcast, and I'm talking to Alan Alda about the secrets of his career. I remember uh, the first couple of seasons of that show. It would there were times where they tried to have kooky episodes, you yeah, know, the, uh, yeah. boxing matches, and, yeah, and, yeah. and what traditional things. Until writers got used to the idea, yeah. that we wanted a little more substance, they would give us standard service comedies, yeah. Um, uh, 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 wacky visitors from, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. higher, higher, you know, you play a trick on a visiting colonel or something <laughs> like that. And then you guys seemed to like, was, I thought, is there, was there a palace coup here amongst everybody that you ended up, um, doing thoughts of real substance, particularly, you know, look, look what the subject matter was. Well, the, the Korean first, war. And yeah, Northern right. Vermont. Well, that, that we wanted to make sure that I wanted to make sure before we did the show that we would not shrink from showing how how bad a war can be. There was, I think, too, you had the surreptitious comment on Vietnam in that show that we did not have anywhere else in popular culture, particularly not on a, on a network show. Korea was substituting for what we had just been through not that long before, you know, less than 10 years before the Vietnam War ended. So we had, uh, in MASH, we had... Um, we had you doctors presenting a humanistic portrait of how mad the whole thing was. And some people said that we contributed to the end of the war, and I never thought so. But I've heard you say in an interview that you felt, for instance, Philadelphia did help the movement toward accepting AIDS as something we needed to work uh, on. Did do you did yeah, I get that wrong? Did do you no, think it's that, possible to do that? There was I, I was answering a question at some point and it was that <laughs> was put. What what do you think you're going to accomplish with this movie? Philadelphia was a movie that cost X millions of dollars, and it needed to make that money back. Mm-hmm. It had to compete in the marketplace. So that's what I'm asking you. How yeah. do you go about that? Well, the the <laughs> my answer, I believe, to that question was: It says, look, if it's possible to turn compassion into a money economic commodity that if you can make a movie about compassion understanding and have it be so glamorous because it's a movie that you paid to see that you want to emulate what that is well then there you actually have created a purpose for a movie beyond the uh, uh holding up the mirror to to human nature but boy there are so many movies that are the opposite of compassion well yeah yeah you know. and that's fun you know i grew up watching movies like the seven faces of dr lao and jason <laughs> and the argonauts and uh you know doris day movies you know please don't eat the daisies things like that and by and large i was usually entertained by almost all of the movies like i remember seeing a movie called I swear the name of it was Duel at Diablo was the name. It was a western. <laughs> it had Dennis Weaver and I think Sidney Poitier in it. Um, and those were those were the movies that we were used to seeing. This that was a type of um, uh, 
That was the type of commerce that even our, our parents had grown. You know, John Wayne moves. I remember going to see McClintock or Chisholm with my dad. And my dad was receiving two hours of entertainment just like he had been receiving since he was not in the 30s and 40s and 50s. It was a thing to do and spend your time. Then um, by, by the time I became dis, a discerning viewer, I was looking for something that I could recognize myself, I, that where I could see, oh, I've seen that. I feel like that guy. I've seen that in, in my community, or I've had those same sort of questions about what life is like. And so a, uh, not, I, I would just say I ended up growing up watching movies about grown-up people going through grown-up things, and that was what I ended up. I was always attracted to the, the, those particular kind of human elements of, as opposed to, we got to get these 40 guns through Apache Pass. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> when I first read your writing, I was surprised at how much I admired it because I didn't know of you as a writer. And your book of short stories is amazingly oh. good. Oh, you read that? Thanks. Oh my God, it's so good. You use you use language to get inside my head and surprise me and keep me amused and interested, but to get me deeper into the people. And you don't use language to show off, which I really admire. I mean, you you could be poetic if you wanted to, but you you you're more plain spoken. And and I really love that. That's the stuff that I just naturally ended up gravitating to. You know, the, I remember um, we were asked to buy books at a quote unquote book fair. And I looked at these titles that they had on card table after card table in, in high school or mm. junior high school. And I had never heard of any of these books. They were by writers I'd never heard of and they had titles I'd never heard of. And I finally said, What's the? Is this a scam you guys are running? No. I said no. We'd like you to. We'd like you to read. We'd promote reading. And it turned out that these books were specifically written for high schoolers who oh, had never. That's why you'd never heard of. So it. the stories were simplistic. They weren't very. De- so I instead I, <laughs> I read, I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. That's the book I got at, and yeah. it scared the living daylights out of me. And from uh, yeah, from a very early age on, I wanted to read about the way things actually worked, and perhaps the way things actually. That's happened. exactly the way I approached reading as a kid. I was eleven years old, and a friend of the family said, "Do you like to read?" And I said, "Yeah, I really enjoy it." You know, what do you? What did you? What have you read lately? I said, "I just read What Makes Sammy Run." <laughs> And oh my lord! Had they even read it? No, though she she had this stunned look on her face, and then she said, "Well, uh, of course that that's over your head." And I thought, "No, it isn't. No, it's not <laughs> no, really. No, it shows you how people really behave. It's not. There's the granddaddy of them all. There's that experience when somebody has read enough of a book. There was a book that was going around, and the first line used the word crap in it. <laughs> yeah, all that David Copperfield kind of crap, and none of us had ever seen a book in our library that had anything remotely like a swear word in it. And so all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know, well, it was Catcher in the Rye. So, oh. so we're reading Catcher in the Rye, and that led to, led to nine stories and, and all sorts. And to, to be empowered, but to discover it yourself, I would say that, to discover it yourself with the help of a good librarian who realizes you're hanging around and you might want to, you might want to like be a little, if, if, like if, if, you, if you enjoyed reading um, Airport 
by Leon, uh, by uh, Arthur Haley, you might enjoy reading Armageddon by Leon Uris. Or, mm. And so off begins it kind of like guy to think. When you were young, would I'd give up on 30 or 40 pages if I wasn't really into it. I still have a tendency to do I, that. I, when I was young, I loved reading anything that seemed like it came from real life because I really wanted to understand how things got the way they were. Mm-hmm. So we had a living room that had been decorated, I guess, by somebody who bought books by the yard. <laughs> As opposed to the color? <laughs> well, yeah. they, they were red leather bound books, oh. but they happened to be the congressional record. So I'd open up a book and lay on the floor and read the congressional record from the, I guess it was from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't get over it. These people would say the distinguished member from Idaho and 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 they'd insult each other in the most elite classical terms. And I thought, well, this is fascinating. This is like a play. It's dialogue. Right, yeah. And I loved it. There was that. There were those type of books that um, I pretended to have read for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I finally read Moby Dick. Oh, I loved Moby Dick when I read it. I, I, I pretended to have read Moby Dick for an awfully long time. See, I'm because, like that with the Russians. Oh, well, I just I, I read I read War and Peace, but I pretend to have read the yeah. Raskolnikov book. I would always get up to the Reverend's sermon in Moby Dick, and I couldn't get. I mean, it's like goes on for seventeen pages, and I could I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past it. And I was out. I uh, was out with some some friends and whatnot. And a friend of mine, one of the guys, says, "What are you up to?" He said, "Oh, uh, I'm reading Moby Dick." I said, "Ah, I could never read Moby Dick." He says, "No, you can." And he said. If you could just get past that reverend sermon, it really, <laughs> it really does take so off. So everybody had that sermon. Uh, but then when I got past it, it's, it, I understand why it's now one of the greatest books now, ever. Now, here's the thing. When I read your book of short stories, I think your, one of your obsessions crept out <laughs> without— <laughs> My typewriters? Your typewriters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the chapters begin with a picture of a different typewriter. What— how did you develop this obsession with typewriters? How many typewriters do you have at home now? Um, in, at home, I'll probably have 15 scattered about the house. But down at the office, I have like 120 or something like that. I rest my case. Yeah. It's, uh, so I, what I, is this? I got to got, start getting rid of them because my kids have said, we're not going to bury you with these things, Dad. You better, you better start giving them away. Um, there is a story that is in that collection that is literally how I got my first typewriter. Um, a friend of mine was a year ahead of me in school, and when he went off to college, he gave me his high school typewriter, which was a piece of junk. It was like a knockoff 1970s version of a very, very, very cheaply made, horribly constructed typewriter that you could type on. Um, and I had it for a couple of years, and when I was in, uh, I was working in Cleveland as an actor, and I needed to get it fixed. Where were you in Cleveland? I was at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival. Oh, I was at the Cleveland Playhouse. Were, no, legendarily so at the Cleveland Playhouse. Yeah, yeah, that was the Cleveland Playhouse was the bitter rival of the Great oh. Lake Shakespeare <laughs> Festival, and vice versa, I think. Um, and it was falling apart, and the carriage uh, was sliding, and when I returned it, it would not line up properly. There was all sorts of problems with it. So I took it to this old German guy at Detroit Avenue Business Machines on the west side of Cleveland. And uh, he was he had a shop that was just jammed with every kind of, like, thousand-key adding machines and what have you. And he was also servicing, by that time— 
printers and, and copy machines and whatnot. And uh, he said, what can I do for you, young man? I said, <clears throat> well, I, I need to have this typewriter service. And he said, let me see the machine. And it had a leather at case, and I opened it up, and he threw his hands up. He says, I will not touch this machine. I said, I, I, will, not touch, I will not touch it, he said. Well, I said, why? Isn't, isn't it your job to repair business machines? <laughs> he says, yes, I, re- I work on machines, not on toys. And this is a toy. And he lectured me for the better part of 20 minutes about what a true typewriter is. And I walked out of there with a Hermes 2000 typewriter that he gave me $5 off uh, for a trade-in for my junk typewriter. And he told me, I'm just going to throw this away. I said, okay, fine. But that Hermes 2000 typewriter, which that particular typewriter got lost over the course of about 10 years and 10 moves, has since been replaced by... Well, you know, 119 machines. That, how, that how, did, how did I, I understand the story leading to owning? So the, you know, a, you're a, asking a, why. Yeah. You're probing deeper, Alan. I mean, I understand owning a typewriter because the guy gets you turned on to it. But how did you wind up with You have an obsession with typewriters. I, I do. How did you get that? You can change the world with a typewriter. Now, you can't change the world, too, with a pen and paper if your handwriting is legible enough. Mine is not. <laughs> there is something about the order that a, a good typewriter puts the words in, the, the, the margins are equal, the typeface is crisp. You can make mistakes, but go back over it, and what you come out of at the end of a piece of paper is as unique a creation as is any oil painting, any watercolor, any photograph negative. Did, did you write your, your book of short stories on a typewriter? I began, I wrote the, about the first five pages of one draft of the story on a typewriter because I didn't have my laptop with me at the time. No, it'd be madness to, in order to do it on a typewriter, but I type every day. I send a letter to somebody, I leave a memo, I put out notes. I, I, I send a lot of letters on typewriters because there is something about the purity of the words in your head and the sound of the percussion of the of the keys hitting the paper. And I can't go back enough again to say the uniqueness of, let me tell you a story. I was at um, Nora Ephron's house. Uh, we were good friends. We worked together. And, yeah. and Nora was one of the great inspirations. And um, she had up on the wall of just in the, in the hallway, she had a letter and I leaned in. It was a framed letter. I said, oh, did Nora get a letter from and the letterhead was uh, Noel Coward. Mm. And it was a typewritten letter from uh, 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 Goldeneye, his place down in, um, down in Jamaica, right? His, his, his uh, winter home in Jamaica. And it said, uh, and all it was was a letter to somebody thanking them for a very witty lunch, a lovely, a lovely afternoon at their house. And there was a little kind of like joke at it that was obviously shared between Noel Coward and, and the hostess. And it, was, and it was signed Noel. And I looked at that and I thought, Noel Coward typed that at his house in Jamaica named Goldeneye. And now it's 60 years later, it's hanging on a friend of mine's wall. Nobody throws away a typewritten letter. So a type a typewritten letter kind of has its own signature, and you can picture that person's hands hitting the keys. Is that the idea? You, the force of your finger on the keys impacts the depth of it. Here's here's the thing: when you type with a typewriter, you are not applying ink onto paper; you're stamping it into the fiber of the papers. 
If I was to type out Dear Alan Alda, which, by the way, I will. <laughs> I'll go home and I'll, I'll send you a letter. I can't um, wait. That, th- th- those are the D-E-A-R space, A-L-A-N space, A-L-D-A space, are not on the surface of the paper. They are inside the fabric of the paper. Uh, and that alone, to me, it turns it into a form of a graphic art. It's not just a, and, and never mind what idea might be communicated in there. Physically, if you put it in a drawer, it'll last a thousand years. So I guess it was natural for a person with so many interests to go from loving what an old typewriter does to the fibers of paper to creating an app that mimics the very sound of a typewriter. More on that when we come back, right after this. On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Tom Hanks. All right, listen to this. Oh, that's uh, that's the typewriter app? That's, uh, that's your app. That, that's Hanks Writer, yes. Yeah, yeah, you produced an app yeah. that does this typing thing and as you type you hear the sound of it what is so seductive about the sound of the typing i, I, I will tell you thank you i dropped my phone on that's the floor. right that's hank's writer that's yeah. available on the uh, on the app store h-a-n-x-w-a-r-i-t-e-r um i knowing that so many people compose on a, a laptop or a, a it really a, a, a ipad or an iphone what's missing there is the percussiveness the sound it's not tap, tap, tap. So you have, an, I think there's a choice now of five or six typewriters. Each one yeah, has a different, different sound. Type, yes, Each I one know. has a different typeface. It, it's, as it's, though you have a collection of six typewriters of your own. <laughs> do you, do, can you type with all 10 fingers? Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. like without looking? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's sometimes you, you have to make sure you're not looking at it. So it comes out, you know. Of course, if you if you're not above the home keys, then you're then you're screwed. Do you remember taking typing class? In I school? never took it. I wish I did. I, I've written all my life with two fingers. Oh, that's the worst way to type that there is. <laughs> well, because <laughs> I, it, I, number I'm, one, it's slow. I've fallen and, down in your estimation. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, kid. <laughs> Can we wrap this up? I need to go. Um, that means you have to look at the keys as you're doing it, and you're going back and forth between what you're typing when you can touch type. 
which I learned how to do in high school, to music, to records. Why, to make you go more rhythmically? Uh, yeah, um, because you weren't supposed, you were only supposed to look at the, ti- the, the paper, not the keys. And the, the records got faster and faster every week. Oh, that's that you interesting. Were in. you, the music would say, okay, and ready. Dun, dun, bum, 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 bum. A, A, A space. S, S, S space. D. D, D space. You know, I'm beginning to understand why I never took that class. Well, it would drive you nuts. <laughs> but you in it for five or six weeks, and next thing you know, you're having a tough like, da, 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 and go. A, A, W, K, S space, W, K, S space, L, M, E space. You had to go like that. The problem is when they put on a Spike Jones record. Well, then you, then, then you got like an acid trip, you know. <laughs> it was like gibberish down there, but man, could it sing. But this is so interesting. I mean, you, you must have some... When people collect things, they get an intimate relationship with the things they collect. Now, for instance, when you if you, people have a collection of Stradivarius violins, have to play them every once in a while to keep them in shape. Do you right. have to type on your yes, typewriter? Yes, I do. You I, do. What happens if I, you... I have some typewriters that are simply objects of art. They sit on a shelf and they're never used. But the vast majority of my collection are working manual typewriters that I rotate into use. So that they all get uh, they all get used in the course of a course. Are of a they year. special typewriters? Not, nothing special about like them. No at all. first edition kind of thing. Um, I got. Uh, I think the most valuable typewriter I have is an I, oddly enough an IBM Selectric that Leo DiCaprio used in the movie Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> and it's funny. I went. I went to the. I went to the prop master after we were done shooting the scene, and I said, "I will give you twenty five dollars for that." IBM Selectric. And he said, okay. And he took $25. He said, you know, you could have had it for free. (laughs) 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 I'm going to give this to the prop guy. Um, No, but it's not about who who typed it. I have one typewriter, I think, that was owned by Mickey Spillane. I can't prove that he wrote anything on it, but there's a providence that says Mickey Spillane owned the typewriter. But all my typewriters are worth about 60 bucks, you know, tops. And if I signed them, they're worth about 62 bucks, <laughs> tops. Well, uh, it's a fascinating obsession to me. When you talk about the keys getting into the texture of the paper, there's something about that that's not mechanical. It, it, there's, a, there's a human element to these machines that I think you see. I now think faster on a typewriter than I do with a pen in my hand or even on, even on my laptop. That's interesting. Your, your nervous system on the t- keyboard is I, helping you. In, I'd uh, rather get going and stick with it than pause and go back and edit and delete. I saw you saying in an interview for this movie that's coming out now that I'm so interested in seeing. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, Mr. Rogers. A uh, beautiful been, day in the neighborhood. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I saw you say, is this true that you felt you learned to listen better playing Fred Rogers? Mari Heller, who is the director. Yeah. A wonderful we, director. Oh, she's, she's the boss. We were talking about this very thing, about Fred's the great power he had and also a defense mechanism too was to listen and not talk let the other person let who you're talking to reveal themselves uh, in the silence as yeah. well as from a single question because we have a tendency like for example for kids to meet a kid for the first time and say hey, how, how old are you do you go to school what grade are you in what's your favorite subject do you have a lot of friends at school do you like baseball we don't even give them a chance to answer the question we just asked them and and fred particularly with children would 
he did this thing, and it's, it's kind of like that. He wouldn't even ask them a question. He would say things like, well, <clears throat> uh, you, 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 that, that's a very impressive belt buckle you are wearing there. And then wait. And then wait for the kid to talk about either the belt buckle or the contest that he wore the belt buckle with. And with my own kids, I, I went back and said, I, I, thought, I think every parent would be a little bit better by listening to their kids talk as opposed to waiting for them to answer. Yeah, that, that's a, an error that I made when my kids were small. Did you ever like pick them up from school and say, hey, how was school today? What happened? And they would never tell you. You have, yeah. you got to wait them out until they start. Oh, you, the the answer that serves every purpose is fine. Yeah, fine. Fine. What, yeah. What, you know. I've had, we had our first kid, probably I was a year older than you were when you had your, I was tw- about 22. I was, I was, I was 20. Yeah. 21. Yeah. And we, we, we were kids ourselves. <laughs> So it, it, I, I, I grew up with my kids learning from them. You learn a lot about who you are from your children, especially when they do what they do things you do and you don't like the look of it. I remember at one point I had a, I had a, a jacket that I couldn't get unzipped. The, the zipper was, was stuck. Yeah. And I got really frustrated. I went, yeah, and I just pulled it off and broke the zipper and threw the thing. Well, what did my son do the next day? Same thing. He was putting on something and ripped it apart and threw it down in the corner. And I said, oh, look what I taught my son to do. <laughs> look, what, look, at, look at the impatience that he has now inherited. From so me. I, I get angry at objects like that. I get angry at coats, at coat hangers, doorknobs that don't open right. Yeah. The, um, you and I both have this reputation as being Mr. Nice Guy, but look out! Yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you're if you're a coat hanger, you better watch your step. Have you ever made. have you ever used this phrase? Let me get this straight. That's I, what when I, I when I pull that out, everybody knows they're in trouble now. Yeah, I have the equivalent to that, which is I, I used to do it a lot when I was younger. If a producer would start to take advantage of me, you know, with money or something like that. I would get very quiet, and I'd talk in this tone that was so quiet, it was sort of ominous. And then if somebody really wronged me, I would say, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I can forgive or forget. Which would you like? Oh. Everybody came out of your office or dressing room quivering after that, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, I, I have a thing uh, that I said, just, you know, look, I, I, I think I'm a well-mannered guy. I think I'm a good-natured guy. But woe to you who takes advantage of my good nature. Uh, for years, I thought, boy, I love a good lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> because it would, be, it would be a way to explain to them, just because I'm not aggressive and clutching you by the throat, that doesn't mean you can take advantage of me. Yeah, and there are people there who will take advantage of you at the very first opportunity. Yeah. And shame on us for not recognizing it sometimes, but doubly shame on us when we allow them to do it once once they've defined who they are. You have this thing on Twitter where you take pictures of things that people lost. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, do you do you give them a hint about where it is? I, I've done, I've done <laughs> talk that. Up, talk about being cruel. <laughs> I've done that once. I found somebody's uh, a Fordham University student law, uh, an ID was in Central Park, and I just picked uh. it up and I 
post I covered their name and I posted it and uh, they said if you, if this is yours and you need it back contact my publicist and they did very quickly it was astounding how fast it happened I think the the girl had her ID back that afternoon wow. which is like well the, that's a great service but what about all these gloves you Well think? the gloves came about because I was working I was in New York City and I was working uh, during one of the springs and when the thaw came out you know oh, the, the snow gloves showed melted, up there's it's like you'd see, okay, a cheap plastic glove. That's one thing, a ski glove or something. Like that. But what do you see that, there it is, it's fine Moroccan leather. It's some rich guy, some hedge funder <laughs> has lost, you know, I'm going to say if if, the, if a pair of gloves costs 500 bucks, this is a $250 glove that's laying there <laughs> in the slush, you know, on on uh, uh, on Columbus Avenue in the, in the low 60s. And I just think, hey, that's a lost glove, man. There's a story behind that lost glove. Love that and baby pacifiers. There's See a, a lot of like, and I understand of, that a lot of baby pacifiers. Well, what's like, the why, why is the baby com- complaining so much? I don't know. I lost the pacifier. So. Was there uh, an especially weird thing you found that you took a picture of? Uh, there was a spatula. <laughs> oh, a spatula. Where'd it, you find that? Down the middle of Forty Fifth Street and, and Ninth Avenue. Oh, the spatula district. Oh, I. <laughs> And here's what I thought. Okay, someone was, maybe they were moving, you know, and they had all their kitchen utensils <laughs> in a box. The back of the car. And it's like, it rattled just enough. So, you know, the uh, the vegetable strainer stained, uh, the, col- the, the colander stayed, a couple of the knives, but that plastic spatula went flying out the window. And I think, are they going to miss this spatula? And it's a lost item that yearns to be taken home. There's so many things I want to talk to you about, and we're running out of time. Um, I wanted, I've, seen you, I've seen you do a eulogy at a funeral, and you're so funny at funerals. You're, <laughs> you're hilarious. Don't you find that show business funerals are really good because people often do an, an impersonation of yeah. the dead guy? Yeah. There is a lot of joy. It's, I find them there oftentimes they're celebrations of the joy that person brought to right, everybody. Right, and everybody it's a great relief there. to be able to laugh if, if, you, can, if you can do it in, in the most, uh, you know, uh, loving way. And, hey, we're in the business of show. That's so right. It's essentially there's the there's the crowd, right. <laughs> there's the microphone, and there's the dead guy. Yeah, <laughs> I was at when when we lost John John Candy when he passed away. He was that was the first time I think in my life where a peer that I had loved and worked with mm. was taken away from. I, me. I worked with John, too. John and it, I it was very it was perplexing and it was sad. I said I this I don't know why is it why does this happen? I I'm prepared to be seventy two and start you know losing buddies, but not not here. And and at his um, at his funeral at St. Martin of Tours uh, in Los Angeles, Danny Aykroyd, who knew John about as well as any human being did, he, his eulogy had me laughing and in tears. It had me in awe of who John Candy was and uh, desperately missing him all at the same time. And I actually thought that Danny Aykroyd just put on a clinic of how to say goodbye to somebody that we Yeah, met. and I, I've seen you do the same. I did my father at his funeral, did an, and it was 
it was it, it was a nice thing to do. It made people laugh, and it made me brought me brought him back to me for a now. Minute. You brought you had your dad on on the Green Show. He came. Yeah, he came the in. Green Show. I thought he you were talking on, about the Green he, Mile he, when you said <laughs> he was he was on me. I remember that came up, and I did not realize that your dad was a you know a recognizable. Oh, he was actor. a very famous actor in he, the forties. Yes, he was, and he did Guys and Dolls on Broadway. Oh, two, two great successes, and uh, not Cole Porter. He did. Uh, uh, forget uh, the, the Gershwin. Gershwin. Check that out on Turner Classic Movies yeah. one of these days. I, that movie moves me all the time. Mm. Mm. So we got to go. But before we go, we always ask seven quick questions. Bring they're, them on. They're harmless. Don't okay, worry. okay. But that's what you say. <laughs> they're roughly to do with communication. Okay. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood the power of serendipity, of that it is possible to be why is it possible to be in the right place at the right time and be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Where, 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 where's the magic of that roll of the dice? Yeah, I, I, wish, I, I wish I understood the, the ability to have faith in that. These damn questions always invite a whole other podcast. I know. I I let, know. I'll come back. Oh, that would be great. Okay, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I say, uh, you have your facts wrong. I'd say that great quote of Patrick Moynihan, dude, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, and yeah. you got yours wrong. Yeah. <laughs> what, number three, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, what's it like doing blank, blank, blank? The idea of what's it like? Yeah. What's it like? It's like being a dog in a tree on Christmas in July. That's what it's like. I know, I know, you know, exactly, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, by not pro prolonging the conversation. I have a tendency to say, ah, oh, 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 fascinating. But you don't do that. Hey, stop, stop doing that. Stop, and, you go and, into your Fred Rogers mode. Uh, just yeah, wait them out. Just wait them out. Exactly yeah. right. Let them talk themselves into a circle. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party sitting next to you? Hmm. I, I, I broach it this way. You know, could I ask you a very specific question? And they usually say, and then I have come up with a specific question. I was with somebody and they were in the trucking industry. And I said, can I ask you a specific question? Yes, this is. Is there a particular personality that goes along with being a long-haul trucker? <laughs> this, this person talked for 20 minutes oh, <laughs> about great. the difference between the guy who del makes deliveries and comes back oh, and the personality so that, yeah, that, this that drives a, across the country three times a month. This is a great tool. Okay, next to last question. Right. What gives you confidence? Oh, uh, other outside of very very little, um, I, I will I will say this um, that I have confidence that I have figured worse things out over time. Yeah, I know that. Feeling. If I figure that out, I can figure this. I can yeah. figure this. Thing. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay, last question. We sort of touched on this, but this is. Can I ask you a specific question? <laughs> well, you, my, it's my medicine coming back to haunt me. What book changed your life? Uh, uh, my name is Asher Lev. Mm. 
I uh, that's written by a, 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 a let's call it Jewish writer, uh, Chaim Potok, if I'm he pronouncing wrote, his name yeah, correctly. Yeah. He wrote a long string of books. Uh, I think the most popular would probably be called The Chosen, um, which is about they may turn it into a movie with Robbie Benson about Orthodox kids playing baseball, Orthodox Jews playing with with mm-hmm. a payas and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and I read that and I thought, how did this Jewish guy that grew up in uh, Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn or New York, how did he write about me? Mm. Because I felt as though I was going through it. Then I went, he read, he wrote a book called uh, Davida's Harp. And he wrote two books about an artist. Uh, one name is My Name is Asher Lev. The other one is A Gift to Asher Lev. It's about an artist of, of Orthodox Jew. And I thought, I don't know anything about Orthodox Jewry. I've never lived in New York City in my life. This is before I'd ever lived in New York City. And yet this guy has written my life story down on, on paper. And it was one of those kind of nonfiction books in which the world that it takes place in is so perfectly and accurately captured on paper that even though the characters are fictional, probably based on his own autobiographical material, but it's all, it was a novel. It wasn't a, it wasn't a history book. It wasn't nonfiction. And I just saw the world and I saw, I saw myself in the body of this six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 13 teenage year old boy who grew up as an Orthodox Jew who had visions of, of art in his head that were, he was he was constantly he was raised in an atmosphere that says that's not what good people do. They don't go off and and become artists. That's a long way of saying that I grew up in an atmosphere in which what are you going to do with your life? You got to you got to be a restaurant manager. You're going to become a bookkeeper. You're going to go to school. What are you going to do? And when I was saying things like I don't know, I, there's this thing called the theater. You might make your living at, and they they was like. No, nah, you can't make your life in a theater. So it was a little bit like that. So that I would say, the, my name is Asher Lev. If I'm pronouncing those words correctly, <laughs> yes. by Chaim Potok, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, that that was one of the most important books I ever. Well, read. you and I were brought together for this podcast by a great writer, Ann Patchett, oh. who helped us set up this date, and that changed our lives a little bit. Well, when I was asked by our, our peers at the Screen Actors Guild, if I'd say a few words for your uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, was that two years ago? Well, year it was ago? last January. Last January. I thought, oh, let me at it. I know, oh, exa- well, I know so exactly great. what I want to say about Alan You were so great. Thank you so much for being on oh, the show Wonderful today. talking to you. I loved it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. As a two-time Oscar winner, Tom Hanks is an absolute legend. He's a Hollywood icon and a measurable talent and someone I'm really fortunate enough to have worked with. He's got a youthful curiosity that's inspiring. And if you haven't seen him as Fred Rogers in his most recent film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, do check it out. The film is now streaming on Amazon. I've been having fun with the Hanks Writer typewriter app. You can download it by visiting hankswriter.com. That's H-A-N-X writer.com. And to stay up to date with all of Tom's latest, be sure to follow him on Twitter. I certainly do. He's at 
Tom Hanks. That's without the X. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon, and it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, here's what you'll find. For as little as $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too. Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. C-L-E-A-R-A-N-D-V-I-V-I-D. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the great Paul McCartney. We talk about his extraordinary career and how it came to be. There was a song we did with the Beatles, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. And the end is, She Loves You, Yeah, 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 Yeah. And there's a big chord. And it's actually a sixth chord. Huh? So, yeah, um, you did on a sixth. Yeah, we did a sixth. Now, we didn't know it was a sixth. <laughs> we just thought it sounded great. And George Martin, our producer, said, no, no, you can't do that. He said, that's a sixth. We went, oh, yeah. He said, it's really corny. Corny, you know, it's like, yeah. And we said, well, we like it. So we kept it, you know. So those kind of things where you, it was a, it was a great voyage of discovery because you were learning all these little things as you went along and you were keeping yourself excited. Yeah, that's which so I important. Think very and, important. And that led to you doing so many different kinds of things. Yeah. Paul McCartney actually shows me how he writes a song next time on Clear and Vivid. <laughs>